Um, before Miranda Paul was an agent, she was um, a member of 12 by 12 and she posted an opportunity with a company called Teacher Created Materials, um, which you don't actually have to be a teacher to write for them. So I sent them an introductory email with a sample and then they assigned me a project. And then a year later, I did another project for them. And then a little bit after that, I found another submission opportunity, I think through a different a different Facebook group. So that is mainly emailing samples and they they match you with a project. But what I've really enjoyed in that space is I've kind of carved out a niche writing historical fiction um, work for hire projects. And I was such a fan of the American Girl books when I was younger. So I really love um, doing those historical fiction projects. This is You May Contribute a Verse. I'm Brenna Jenneret, kidlet author of The Law of Birthdays, illustrated by Marina Kondra, coming May 1st from Cardinal Rule Press. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Munkin, kidlet author, dad, and science communicator, and podcast wizard, John Seymour, author-illustrator of the newly released A Morning with Blueberry. That was our guest, Susan Johnston-Taylor, author of Animals in Surprising Shades, illustrated by Annie Basque chatting about just a few of the many opportunities she's jumped on as a very prolific and accomplished kidlet writer. We go on to talk about work for hire, school visits, submission strategy, and Susan even reads a bit for the Dead Manuscript Society. Tune in for Susan's verse. So Josh, I was just telling Susan that we are moving because she asked where where I was from. And so she was just saying she's from Austin. So I, I love Austin. How long have you lived there? Seven years. Oh, wow. So where are you from originally? I'm originally from Boston. Oh, okay. What brought you to Austin? Uh, my husband's job. He got, he, um, before Whole Foods was acquired by Amazon, um, he was working for Whole Foods Corporate. Oh, Okay. And he's had a couple different jobs um, since then, but that's originally what what brought us to Austin. Can I, oh, can cool. I make an obvious joke though? Because like I feel like I I picked up on on the the audio funniness of this. You went you went to Austin from Boston so that you could get away from the bees. Well, actually, so in between we live we lived in Canada actually nice. in between okay, for my well, husband's job. Phonetically less relevant though. <laughs> right. Yeah, phonetically less relevant. No, yeah. there's no joke there. Canada no. has to stay out of it. Get out of here, Canada. There's plenty of Canada jokes. <laughs> Shout out to John, our Canadian. Yeah, right. Writer. Shout out to our <laughs> wizard, our podcast wizard. Um, I'm trying try my best to get my non sequiturs out of the way early in the conversation. <laughs> It's like in the office when Pam has to like tell Michael there's a call on the line for him like several times. Like he needs several attempts to be normal. <laughs> it's kind of like that. I She's like, let's try again. Relatable. <laughs> Anyways, I love Austin. It's really, it's like a really fun, like quirky little town. My a really good friend of mine from college, an old roommate of mine, um, lived down there for a little while. And so um, I went to visit her and it's, yeah, it was really fun. Like very... Um, very sort of Portland-esque. I lived in Portland for a little while. That's where my son was born. And it's got that same sort of like quirky, fun vibe. So Portland, but hotter. Yeah, way hotter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have a we have a great kid like community in Austin. I think our the Austin SCBWI chapter has like 300 members. Oh wow, that is big. Sizable. I think yeah. Yeah, that is big. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Austin. And you I was reading in your bio from the arc that you had sent us of uh, Animals in Surprising mm-hmm. Shades, which um, sometimes I feel like we'll, we'll go 20 minutes without like acknowledging the book that, you know, an author is here to talk about. So shout out to that. <laughs> but in the uh, in the about the author section of that, I read that there's a nonprofit that you work for in Austin that I can't recall at the moment, but that you uh, that had a, like a quirky name. Is that right? It's Austin Batcave, so the acronym okay. is ABC, and it's a literacy nonprofit, not a bat conservancy. It's a literary, <laughs> a literacy nonprofit that um, teaches creative writing workshops to kids. So I just finished doing a month-long animal poetry camp with an artist. So we did poetry and visual arts uh, once a week with, with some kids at a local school. 
Um, and then before that, I did a couple, I led a couple of online poetry camps during the pandemic. That's wonderful. That, How do you? Yeah, do you that's come, really cool. Yeah. Do you come by that education and kids, kids outreach stuff pretty honestly? In terms of your, like, like your, um, your education, well, actually, your background. I, I would say it's a comp. I don't have a background in education, but I would say it's a combination of my love of writing and then also my love of theater and performing. Which is necessary to keep kids' attention, for sure, and teach them things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's awesome. And I was also reading um, just a little bit, you know, in your bio before we got on. I mean, there is like a whole... There's like, there's like so much. So the, the PB writing spree in 23, shout out to them. Cause we have some friends, um, in that group as well, but also writing barn fellow and teaching assistant. And then the, um, Austin SCBWI, the, um, writing mentor award. Like you just, there's like so much on here. And then also animals in surprising shades, um, published by gnome road. I, um, yeah, I was really impressed, or sorry, I was impressed by that, by the list, and then surprised that you are still looking for representation, because, I mean, wow, like you're, you have, and it's, a, how many books do you have coming out in the educational market? Uh, so my 16th educational book should hopefully be coming oh out later <laughs> this year, and then wow. I also have um, this trade book as well, and I just sent in an R&R to an editor, and I have another project that's under consideration with an editor. Oh so my gosh. Hopefully, by, maybe by the end of the year, that will change. So, okay, so let me just. And respectable, yeah. Yeah, but let me just, so I wanna, I wanna get into that just a little bit. So are you actively seeking rep or, because I mean, it seems like you're doing just fine. So like, are you kind of just like, whatever, I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing because it's working. No, I'm, I'm actively seeking representation because I know that there are a lot of houses and some of them you can submit through SCBWI opportunities or um, I'm also part of the Courage to Create and they have some editor submission opportunities. But mm. um, some of the houses you really need to be um, agented. I have a project that I would love to submit to Imagination Press, which is published by the, uh, I believe, the American Psychological um APA and you need an agent to submit to them. So I'm definitely actively querying. Um, I I believe I've sent about 300 queries. So definitely, definitely hoping that by the end of the year, I get, get some news there. Wow. Yeah. And when, so 300, does that span, is that just for this year or does that span oh, like no. quite a, that's, okay. Oh um, been since 2017. Okay. Okay. Pace, pace Man, yourself. the query trenches. Yeah. Wow. They, I mean, they're rough. Cause I mean, the, your your resume like speaks for itself like your website is very impressive so you know it's I I guess I I highlight it just to say you know for people listening it's it's so subjective it's so you know it doesn't have anything to do with you personally like you know you just have to keep working at it because it's just you know it'll happen when it happens but anyways yeah wow so okay 16 books in the educational market though like, can you, can you talk about how you got to that? Cause that, that's, that's flabbergasting to me. And I, I know we've talked a little bit with a couple of previous guests, Sam Gassman um, comes to mind who had a, a, a couple of books in, in the ad market, but how do you, how do you break in there? How do you make those sorts of relationships? And is it, I'll, uh, I'll let so, you talk. <laughs> and those are for three, di- three different publishers. So the first uh, one I found through 12 by 12. Um, before Miranda Paul was an agent, she was um, a member of 12 by 12 and she posted an opportunity with a company called Teacher Created Materials, um, which you don't actually have to be a teacher to write for them. So I sent them an introductory email with a sample and then they assigned me a project. And then a year later, I did another project for them. And then a little bit after that, I found another submission opportunity, I think through a different, a different Facebook group. So that is mainly emailing samples and they they match you with a project. But what I've really enjoyed in that space is I've kind of carved out a niche writing historical fiction um, work for higher projects. And I was such a fan of the American Girl books when I was younger. So I really love um, doing those historical fiction projects. I that's, never that's awesome. thought of those American Girl books as historical fiction, but I suppose they are. <laughs> 
That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's really fun. The The work for hire space seems like, yeah, like people get in there and then they sort of have, um, yeah, once you get a, your foot in the door, you know, you have more um, opportunities that come about. Yeah, 11 of those books were for the same, the same series, um, all about American history. And those were actually high-low books, so high interest but low reading level for teens and maybe older learners who perhaps aren't reading at grade level. So the idea is to give them books that are engaging and not not infantilizing. So with teen characters that they can relate to, but at a third or fourth grade reading level, so it's accessible um, to people with learning disabilities, maybe English language learners and, and other people who maybe aren't reading at grading, be, reading at grade level. Not And when you say high-low, not... Um, not high interest in the sense of like, you know, write about the history of Minecraft or the history of skateboarding or something. It's more like high high interest in in terms of relatable characters. That's a, a term. I, it's a term I have. Yeah, heard I mean, before. in the nonfiction space, there definitely are um, high low books that are like, hey, here, here's all about Minecraft for teens, written at a third grade reading level. But in this case, it's really um, characters that are age appropriate, but then the sentence structure and the vocabulary is a little bit simpler. An interesting niche, I guess, to carve out. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that's the first time um, I think that we've we've explored this sort of space. So how how I mean, how are you with the with the writing for hire thing? I mean, but we've we talked about folks. I think we've talked to the vast majority of folks that have been on the show, where you know they want to initiate their own projects and have control over something that they're really passionate about. Uh, do you feel like uh, and again, here's my my weekly uh, tie-in to my my day job, uh, where I I specifically write for scientists in the farming space and um, have I I don't have a challenge with writing for hire or writing to you know certain specifications, but it's it, that's different for the children's market uh, for most folks. Well, my background is as a freelance writer, so I'm I'm used to writing to spec and on deadline. So that doesn't bother me. And as I'm sure you both know, and all of our listeners know, traditional publishing can move really slowly. So it is nice to have some of those wins while you're submitting other projects to trade publishers. It's really nice to have those opportunities um, to write books in in other ways, um, and they can come out more quickly than a trade book. Um, And another, I haven't done any work for hire books this year, but I have also been working with an ed tech company, um, writing little sentences sentences, teaching kids different grammar concepts, but also keeping it really high interest and and fun. Um, So that's been a great challenge for me as well. And probably not something that most kidlit authors necessarily envision themselves doing, um, but that can be another study areas is is working with ed tech companies. Do you feel like it's hard for you to uh, contact switch from one to the other? Because they, you know, the, the, um, topic is they're they're like they're pretty different right like like animals in surprising shades like that that is like completely different than writing historical fiction so is it hard for you to context switch or is it is it sort of like like for me I like to have different stuff to switch back and forth to because it helps you know like unblock me in certain areas or if I'm fatigued by something or just you Mm -hmm. know need something else my my interests are really varied like I have um, I have a picture book that is set during World War One, so it's historical fiction. And um, let's see, I have some other projects that are funny and punny and not STEM related at all. Some SEL projects. Um, so for me, I really, I really like that um, variety, mm-hmm. and that also may may be something um, where it's taking a little bit longer for for agents to see how I fit in the market because I do have such a such a, a wide range from poetry to SEL and funny and historical and nonfiction and kind of all these, I write in lots of different categories. So um, for me, it just, it just feels natural to explore lots of different interests and lots of different um, approaches to writing. Do you, th- do you think about um, your external face in the publishing market that, like as you think about animals in surprising shades coming out and your sort of like bulk, like bulk of 
educational market materials having any influence on your future career or how you think about like di directing what gets published in the future? It's kind of a nebulous question, but mm. yeah. Well, I do have another. I do have another animal poetry collection that is under consideration at a publisher, but it's not really a companion book because the concept is is really different. Um, so I think a lot of right now, a lot of what I put out on social media is related to animals in surprising shades, obviously, because it just came out and, um, I'm trying to promote that, but I think that my author identity will probably evolve depending on whatever the next project is that gets, um, that gets acquired. Um, and of course, most work for hire authors don't devote as much time to promoting their work for hire books because it's not Typically, it's not um, an advance in royalty structure, but when I get my author copies in the fall, I probably will, um, you know, shout out those books a little bit. And one of them is also, um, it's a book about, it's a nonfiction book about deer and antelope. So when I was offered that project, I said, well, that's perfect because I also have this animal poetry collection. So this is sort of adjacent to that. Um, but I'm certainly not limiting myself to writing about animals because I have so many other interests. You're going to write yourself into an animal yeah. corner. <laughs> That's how you'll be known. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have, I have three other, pro three other picture book projects, um, involving animals in different, in different ways, but I, you know, there's plenty of other projects too that have nothing to do with animals. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So let's talk about animals in surprising shades because I have so many questions about it because it was like, Josh and I were just chatting briefly before we got on and we both had the same sort of uh, like main takeaway. Like it is set, the structure is something that I haven't seen before in terms of the varying um, like ways that you are writing the poetry, like the poems mm -hmm. and the format switch for every single animal, which I thought was really interesting. And I also loved the bottom part where it's not just like, it's not just a sidebar about like the animal or like this is actually true or like fun fact or whatever. It's about the actual poetry, which I thought was very cool because I haven't seen that before. And for me personally, as an adult reading it, I'm like, oh, I never knew that this form existed. That's very cool. And then I went back to sort of like, you know, examine it and look to see like, oh, right. Okay. It does do that thing with the syllables. Like that's, that's really cool. I didn't notice that before. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about like, how you decided to do that. And specifically, I'm interested to, to hear what you have to say about how you decided which form went with which animal. Cause that, I mean, that must've mm -hmm. been, I don't know if it was just like, you know, pick one out of a hat and it's fine. Or if it was very like methodical, cause it was, yeah, it's a very cool format. So, um, I, I got an agent R and R on animals and surprising shades back in 2020. And from I was going back and What's that from? Name? Sorry, from Gnome Road. No, um, back when I was submitting it to agents. Oh, okay. Um, I had an agent. Okay, I'm just trying to follow the timeline. Okay, got it. Oh, no problem. So I originally thought of the concept in late January 2020. Wrote it, um, you know, in the first couple of months of the pandemic. Started started querying in the summer, and then in the summer I had an agent R and R, and she said she really liked the pink manta ray poem, which is a shape poem in the shape of a manta ray. And, but she wanted me to revise some of the other poems so that they delivered that same level of surprise and whimsy. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and some of the animals that I had originally chosen, I felt like just didn't, uh, maybe were not as surprising and as whimsical. So I discarded some of those poems and started over with some different animals. And my mentor, um, Bethany Hegedus at the Writing Barn, suggested um, Dictionary for a Better World as a mentor text, which is a poetry collection by Irene Latham and Charles Waters. And that, so each letter of the alphabet, there's like a different poem related to social justice. And those poems, it mixes different, different poetic forms. And so that's where the idea of introducing those different poetic forms really took shape. Um, and some of my CPs and a couple of agents really didn't like that approach. They felt like I should use a consistent, consistent rhyme scheme and consistent mm -hmm. type of poem. Um, however, I had read some other animal books that did that. They followed a consistent rhyme scheme and used the same poetic structure throughout. 
Um, and some of them do it really well. And others of them, it really starts to me, it starts to feel very same, same mm -hmm. after a while. So I really liked the idea of introducing different poetic forms because it's something that elementary school teachers can use in an ELA unit. And it also reflects the, the biodiversity of our worlds um, because animals come in different colors, poems come in many different shapes. And mm. so that's another way to explore that theme. In terms of writing the poems, the pink manta ray poem I always knew was going to be a shape poem because it's such a fun shape and it really lent itself um, to that structure. But for a lot of the other poems, I really just tried different, different things and to see what works. Okay, I'm blocked. I'm trying this out as a haiku. I'm really blocked. So I'm going to try something else until I find something that, that works for me. And that was really helpful for me as well because I wasn't locked into one rhyme scheme. In fact, not all of the poems rhyme. So I was able to jump around and experiment and, and find what worked. And um, I wanted to get an acrostic poem in there. So the like closing poem is written as an acrostic. Um, can you, and I thought, can, sorry, can you just break down what an acrostic is for of course. everybody? So <laughs> it spells out on the left-hand side, it spells, it spells out the word rainbow, but it could spell out any word. Oh, and then, okay, cool. Yeah. And then because the, the way the animals are presented, they go in, in rainbow order so that, and when I do read alouds with kids, I like after a couple of poems, I say, okay, we've had the, the red poison dart frog. We've had the orange newt. What color do you think comes next? And then they yell out yellow. Oh, okay. That's very right. cool. So wow. <laughs> it is. Wow. I never even, oh my gosh, so much thought and consideration went into well, this book. And and it's so well engineered too. I mean, the only reason that I, I know what an acrostic is, uh, is because my third grader came home and used the term and I went, what, what did you just say? Uh, and she's, <laughs> right. she's schooling me. So, you know, I, I know that this is directly relevant to that age group, but I, yeah, I mean, just an observation to how the book is formatted. Like I think of, of young poetry collections in that sameness is I think really nice for predictability for things like my, my younger kid who is six years old or from, from between like three to six, I think there would be a, a level of comfort that, that they would take from having something that's like a predictable rhythm versus that variety that becomes so teachable. And the, the teachable thing, um, I think, uh, is interesting to explore from the perspective of you're not teaching what iambic pentameter is. You're not teaching, um, you know, meter and rhythm. That's for the teachers to explore. This is almost like, um, like not historical fiction, but it's, it's like, um, it's, it's teaching about the forms themselves and leaving space to explore that leaving space to explore the animals as well um, outside the confines mm -hmm. of the book, which I think is, is interesting. And my editor at Gnome Road is the one who came up with the poetic seek and find in the back matter, which I thought was just so clever. And some of those poems are poems that I had written originally in like my first version that I started submitting. And then I replaced them with other animals, but they found a home in the back matter. Oh, that's always nice as a writer too, I feel like, you know, because you put, again, you put so much time and effort into, you know, sort of engineering these poems to fit the animals and all the stuff. And then in the end, it doesn't fit. And you're just like, shoot, like, I really want it to, but it doesn't. So like, <laughs> to find a home for it, you know, somewhere else in the book even is, is just, yeah, that's really nice. And oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I had another, I wrote multiple poems about poison dart frogs and one didn't fit in the book. So I submitted it to a, an online children's poetry magazine called The Dirigible Balloon. And so now it's published on there. Yeah, I, I love being able to find a home for stuff that doesn't seem to fit anywhere else. I did the same thing with Dirigible. I have one that didn't fit for anything else. And I was like, oh, maybe they would like it. And they were like, yeah, totally. Like, we'll publish this. I was like, yay, because it's so nice to just have your stuff out in the world somewhere instead of just like in your in your sad, you know, Google Drive, because nobody will ever see it. Um, I, I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to circle back real quick about the thing that you said about your critique partners and how some of them were like, you know, we don't like this structure. Like it doesn't really work. Like it needs to be consistent. Just, just because like 
I really like what you said about, you know, sort of doing your work and reading, you know, several different kinds, several examples of either consistency or mixing it up. And you ultimately in your gut were like, no, I want it to be not consistent. I want it to be, you know, different across the board because, you know, we talk about this on the podcast and just in writing circles in general, you know, how much feedback do you take in? What do you take and what do you leave? And ultimately it comes back to you and your story and what exactly are you trying to do? So I just, I just wanted to point that out because I, I appreciate that you were like, look, I, you know, I thank you for the feedback, but like, I'm not going to do that. So, um, how, like, how hard was that for you to do? Were you, did you waffle about that at all? Or were you just like, I don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, I thought, I thought about making it making it consistent, but I just felt that the variety also played into the theme of biodiversity, which is like a key sort of takeaway from the book. Mm-hmm. So, and I also felt like I would be better able to execute if I'm not constrained to one rhyme scheme or one one format. So I felt like I had multiple reasons for deciding to stick with this direction. Um, and obviously my my editor really liked this version. So I think that also validates that decision. Yeah. What, um, in, in the initial version where, you know, you, you know, you're backing the pink manta ray concrete poem, what forms did the other like initial draft poems take? Were they, were they still as diverse as they are now? They, they weren't. Um, I wasn't, I didn't have those sidebars of like, here's a haiku. It was sort of um, I was kind of tiptoeing into that poetic variety, mm. but I hadn't fully committed to it. And I think once I read Dictionary for a Better World, um, it inspired me to really, really go in that direction and really embrace different poetic mm. forms. How how did you feel about the R&R not moving forward? In... In, in, in terms um, you know, of, it was di- it was disappointing. Yeah. yeah, it was it was disappointing. But um, my critique partners, I think even even the one or two who said I think you should use the same format throughout, they all said you know this has to be a book. And so I decided that by the end of because tw- I had gotten a lot, I'd gotten R and R, I had gotten a lot of agents who had very very strong positive reactions to the manuscript. And so I, and so my, and my critique partners were saying, this really should be a book. This is that good. And so I decided that if, if I wasn't agented by the end of 2020, then I would start submitting to editors on my own. And of course, on December 30th of 2020, I had another agent request more manuscripts. So then that delayed things a little bit because I wanted to see what kind of wait and see if that agent was going to offer representation. But then March came around and Gnome Road had this open submission window and they were interested in STEM poetry and nature. So I just decided I can't wait any longer. I need to get this. This is, you know, a very specific, I think the submission window was maybe a month or two. And I was like, I've, I've got to take my shot um, and get this out there. And I'm glad that I did because, um, Pretty quickly after I submitted it, the editor asked for a Zoom meeting, um, and then she made an offer. Oh, that's wonderful. You weren't awesome. still waiting for that that December 30th agent to get back to you, were you? I would have mentally, uh, mentally and emotionally I, I given up I think I nudged her when I got the <laughs> offer, and then... Um, she sent. She actually sent a very long love letter of like, here's what I love about your PP bio, and here's what I love about this other project... But um, that's that's typically the responses oh, that I get. Yeah. But I'm just I'm just not I'm just not sure. My client list is so full. Um, so I so I just decided to um, go ahead and sign the contract on my own. And I did have a lawyer friend um, look it over at least. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so hard though to have an agent, you know, sort of like gush over your work and your bio and everything, and then ultimately to be like, sorry, because it's kind of like, what else do you need? Like, what? Exactly. Like, what? What yeah. is it? I mean, that's how I would feel. Like, like, oh my god, like, please just tell me, like, what is it that you are looking for? Because I, I mean, that's like, it's such a mixed message, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of agents 
it liked the poetry, but they weren't sure about selling it because children's poetry is, you know, a smaller, a smaller market. And I've definitely found that there are some booksellers who are a little bit um, wary of children's poetry, which is why I'm now focusing more on schools and libraries mm. in my marketing. Um, but yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that I gave myself permission to go ahead and submit it to some editors instead of, you know, waiting for representation. Was the That's marketing it. component, sorry. uh, and sorry, I think, I think I've got a delay. So if I'm talking over you, sorry, <laughs> we'll cut this part out. Um, no, it's fun. It's cool. Yeah, go ahead. Was the, was the marketing component part of the initial Zoom conversation? Here's how we're going to place this. Here's the vision that we have for this book. Or did that come later? Uh, no, I think my editor, Sandra, did mention in the initial in the initial Zoom conversation, she said, you know, I see so many authors doing giveaways on social media. Um, and she said a lot of times those books, you know, just go to other, other authors. And so she said, I think it's really important if you do giveaways, I think it's really important to try to target the school and library market rather than just marketing to other authors. So when my book launched, um, I did a giveaway of a copy of my book and a 30-minute Zoom um, school visit. And I think I had probably over 100 teachers and librarians enter that giveaway. And it ended up going to a school librarian in Virginia. So I sent her the book and then we had a lovely school visit on Zoom and she gave me a testimonial for my website. So I think it was um, really smart of Sandra, my editor, to kind of say that up front that all these authors are doing doing giveaways, but you don't want to just be talking to other authors. Yeah, that's definitely a consideration. Yeah, because you want it to get into the bigger markets and to to go beyond the choir, so to speak. Because like, yeah, we all love every you know everybody else's stuff, and we're here to like support. But yeah, in terms of getting it to a wider space, that's really good advice. It's much easier for librarians and teachers who fall in love to use the libraries or the school's money to make more purchases of your uh, of your books to get it mm-hmm. into other hands. So make note, authors yeah, who exactly. uh, have teachable books, for sure. How? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add, and, um, you know, Gnome Rhone is a, is a smaller publisher. They are a PAL, an SCBWI PAL publisher, and they, they did invest a lot of energy into a, a teacher guide. There's a lot of resources on teachingbooks.net related, related to my book, and there's a really detailed educator resource guide. And some of my friends in PB Spree at bigger publishers have had to pay for that themselves. So I really appreciated that Gnome Road saw the value of those teacher resources and they've invested in that. Is that a standard for Gnome Road? I think of them as being more generally more STEMI. Um, yeah, a lot of the, their books are STEMI. Um, I don't know for sure, but I think I think they have done teacher guides I think they've done teacher guides for all of their books, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. Is that something that you you particularly chased after and worked on given your sort of like background writing to spec and writing freelance and things? Or, or is that something that they generally will contract out? Oh, um, yeah, I, di- I didn't write it. They contracted out it out. Um, now, they included, I had done an activity with my niece. We painted some some rocks to look like Picasso bugs, which is one of the animals in my book, and then I turned I turned that into a little Instagram reel, showing other like homeschool families and teachers how they could incorporate a STEM craft into their curriculum. And she, the educator resource guide includes a link to that demonstration video, um, but most of the material she contracted out um, to people who specialize in in curriculum guides and teacher guides. And actually I'm doing an, an outdoor event in Austin next week in the park. Um, it's a neat little mini nature poetry workshop. And I realized I have all these handouts and I needed something to weigh them down. So I'm using the Picasso bug rocks that we painted several months ago. I'm gonna use those as paperweights nice for placement. all my yeah. all my handouts <laughs> so they don't blow away. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad I kept. I'm glad I kept the rocks because afterwards I was like, I'm not really sure what I'm gonna do with these, but I kept them around in my garage just in case. It's time for this week's book reviews. 
from Jan. Jan's review this week is Don't Call Me Grumpy Corn by Sarah McIntyre, a fabulously colorful space adventure with Unicorn and his friends, Mermaid, Norwal, and Jellyfish, that focuses on themes of kindness, inclusivity, and appreciation. And if there's anything to take away from this awesome space tale, it's that sometimes the fabulous things we are all searching for aren't really as fabulous as we thought, and the true fabulousness that we should have been looking for ends up being what we already have, which is super fabulous. John gives this story five fabulous planets out of five. That was a tongue twister, but also fabulous. From Josh, Josh's review starts at the library. He loves it when he sees a friend's book on display. And lo and behold, Kim Hoa owns A Gift for Nene was front and center until he checked it out, of course. It's a super sweet story that mixes familial relationships with being thoughtful and crafty, like many of the best adult child family stories. It's easy to imagine, but only lightly implied, that Nainai might have known what the, what the scheme was from the get-go. And even if that's the case, it's comforting and welcoming to have a central story led entirely from the child's actions with the adults in the story gamely following along. A gift for Nainai is a gift for us. And my review for this week is Tenacious, 15, 15 Adventures Alongside Disabled Athletes by Patty Cisneros Prevo and illustrated by Dion MBD. This compilation is incredible of incredible stories, has it all. Rhyming couplets for the younger crowd, motivational stories from Annabelle Gibb, a disabled hip-hop dancer, to Sandy Ducat, who set the world record in marathon running for above-the-knee amputations, and true-to-life illustrations that pull the reader in from page one. Every story is different, but the same theme comes up again and again. Tenacity. Don't forget to get your own library reviews and requests in. It's the number one way to help an author's sales. Love the podcast and want to help support more great episodes like this one? Well, The Verse Show is now on Patreon. And big thanks to our first Patreon subscriber, Jenna Johnson. We couldn't be more excited for your support and for listening to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. But if the Patreon's not your style, we totally get that. Community shoutouts are here to stay. You could shout out someone amazing in the Kidlet world. Check out the merch, leave us a review, or even just share the episode with a friend. A big thank you to everyone out there listening. And now, back to our show. Can we circle back real quick to what you said about Gnome Road? So they are a PAL SCBWI publisher. Can you just mm-hmm. break that down, of what, what that means for, for our listeners? Yes. So SCBWI has a designation called PAL, which is published and listed. And it's certain standards that publishers need to meet in order to be considered a PAL publisher. I believe they need to have at least four books published and there's some other other criteria that they need to meet. And so if you're an SCBWI member and you're published by a PAL publisher, then you are considered a PAL member. And it's um, it's just sort of a level up from, from general membership. Now, I actually had written for, it used to be called Boys Life, and now it's called Scout Life. It's the, the magazine of the Boy Scouts of America. And they are also a PAL publisher. You can get, get your PAL membership through books and also through writing for children's magazines. So I believe when I first joined at SCBWI back in 2016, 2017, I was already a PAL member because of my, my writing for magazines. And now I'm a PAL member also because of the books that I've written. And you can receive PAL membership also for work for hire books as long as the publisher is, is on that list. So is it generally oh sorry josh <laughs> is it generally smaller question, yeah yeah is it generally smaller publishers who are on that list like because you said at least four books published so i'm guessing like it, it's publishers who are sort of growing their uh no the the big publishers are on there too oh so okay. it's just like it's minimum and then like people uh, publishers that are that surpass that are also considered pop publishers okay so like gen so like generally if you have a traditionally published book you may be a pal author and mm-hmm. then you are eligible for this other membership yes. through SVW. and then my chap the austin chapter is is very large and so they often send out members specifically they often send out emails specifically to pal members for instance they'll say you know, hi, PAL members, we have we have an opportunity for you to sign books at the Texas Library Association conference. Or, you know, we have an opportunity for you to apply for 
you know, this or that thing. And that doesn't go out to the general membership because those members, you know, are not published yet. And so those opportunities wouldn't be applicable to them. Okay, got it. So the, uh, this is just to be clear on this, because this is this is an, an education for me. This is like a sub like a sub certification. Like you call yourself a PAL author because you have been uh, published by a PAL publisher and that affords you some level of mm-hmm. like additional additional opportunity or additional connection. Just I guess making the observation uh, for those listening to this, that if, if this is not a program that you're aware of, and maybe I'm only not aware of it because I'm not a published author, but if you're not aware of it, I guess check check your publisher because you may be able to call yourself a pal author. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I put that, um, a lot of agents like to see your SCBWI, you know, affiliation in the query because it shows that you're invested in working on your craft. So I say in my queries, you know, I'm an SCBWI PAL member, I'm a Writing Barn Fellow, um, and that just shows what I'm doing to to work on building my craft. And you certainly have racked up plenty of bona fides to to, to lengthen your <laughs> query letters. <laughs> um, so I wanted to to circle back a little bit to what you were talking about about when you were um, submitting and you know whether or not to submit to an editor and if you're gonna you know hold off for the agent. So okay, so I I am also in the query trenches and I feel like it's become a bit of a um, sort of strategy kind of thing. Because if you submit to an editor and you do get, you know, an offer or interest or whatever, then you can, you know, you have something to sort of leverage or nudge, you know, agents who might also have that manuscript. But it's almost like, like it's something to consider, but the timeline is sort of out of your hands. So it's like, okay, if I sub this thing here and this thing here, but then it's silent on the agent's end, but I get interest, you know, I can nudge them, but you know, do you, like, has it been read? Like, do you, I, you know, you know what I mean? Like it just, I feel like it's a little bit nebulous. Like you sort of don't know which one to sub to first, like a little bit like chicken and the egg kind of thing. So did you think about that at all? Like, what is your strategy? Well, I think, and I, I would say that you could nudge, even if you got interest in a different project, I think you could nudge the agent mm. that has your manuscript and say, hey, I have interest in this other project because it shows that you have, you're not just focused on one manuscript because they want to represent your, your full body of work. Now, when I got that offer from Gnome Road, they were brand new. So I did use that to nudge some agents, but um, that they didn't really mean anything to them at the time. I know now um, Gnome Road gets tons of agented submissions, so I think it would mean something different now, two years later, than it did versus 2021. I think my strategy has always been to submit projects to agents first, and then if um, if I'm not getting traction, then to shift to editor submissions because you'll have more more options if you go through an agent. Mm-hmm. But if you really believe in a project and for whatever reason it hasn't found its agent home, submitting to editors is another way to get it to get it out into the world. But I do think um, it's preferable to have an agent because you have more options and then you also have someone negotiating the contract on your behalf. Um, I think poetry was a little different because um, you know it tends to be published by smaller presses, although the bigger presses do sometimes publish po- children's poetry too. And so, you know, I just felt like the agents are validating the quality. They're just, they just weren't sure of the viability in the market. Some of them said, you know, I just sold another STEM poetry book. I just don't know that I can do it. I don't know if I can send out another one, you know, so soon. Um, and so I felt like in this case, because, I had sent it probably to like 50, probably about 50 agents and gotten a lot of very positive responses, but no offers of representation. And so I felt like, okay, now's, now's the time to try a different um, approach. I don't think I've sent any projects directly to an editor without, um, actually, no, that's not true because I have this other um, animal poetry project. I've sent it to a very few agents. But my experience the last time was that there wasn't a huge appetite from agents for poetry. So I did send um, 
I had I pitched pitched the poetry collection to an editor through a conference, and then she asked to see it. And then uh, my editor at Gnome wrote because I've already published poetry with her. I also sent it to her um, as she's she's looking at her list for the future. Um, but my other like my fiction non my fiction and nonfiction picture books that are a little more traditional in structure, I've been submitting them to agents first, and then and then sending them out to editors once I've kind of tested the waters with agents first. Mm -hmm. And now that you have an... I'll let you go, Josh. Go ahead. Okay. I was just going to ask what your your threshold is for, um, you know, floating it to agents and gauging whether it's time to just just take it on your own. I want to couple that question with what projects you query at all, because there there must be a, a few things that you just you just hold that maybe you don't think are queryable or maybe are like um like a backdoor here's uh, what i'm trying to investigate is is this notion that i have about my own work that like some of my stuff may be too off the wall for me to lead with it in a conversation with an agent or an or an editor it may be like a good second or third book but i may need to lead with something that's like more representative of something that would not it's not to say that my work is shocking but would not uh be so so weird as to uh be rejected on the merits of its weirdness and potential as like a debut publication yeah i have i have um a board book project it's two companion board books um both about music and as i'm sure most people know the board book market is even smaller than picture books because they're more expensive to produce and so I've submitted those to a couple of publishers and gotten champagne passes um, from some of those publishers. I definitely don't tend to query those two agents because they agents are not stupid. I don't think that that's necessarily the first thing they want to see from from an author is a board book because they know how hard it will be to sell. I have when an agent asked to see additional work, I have included those board books sometimes within my body of work so they can see, you know, she has a number of full-length picture books. She also has these board book projects. And so she's writing, I'm writing for a variety of ages, which I've heard is something that agents like to see. I would think diversity is a strength more so than a specific writing thesis and selling to different markets and in different, different areas allows a much larger throughput of your work than if you were just to sell, you know, a, a one, one well-defined Susan book after another, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, um, right now I'm reading Kim Norman's really, really detailed guide to school visits. Um, she has, she has a how-to book um, on Amazon all about setting up your author school visit program. And one of the things that she mentions is that schools love it when authors have different books for different age groups so they can bring in one author and he or she can adapt the program for for different grade levels over the course of the day. Yeah, that I feel like that's an important consideration just in picture books in general. Like if you have if you have enough hooks in there to appeal to, you know, elementary school kids, but then like upper elementary school or even, you know, like the, you know, those older readers who are reading like the sidebars or you've got, you know, back matter in there that can be expanded on for, you know, whatever classroom it's like, yeah, however many hooks you can like, you know, squeeze in or like layer over is gonna, is gonna really help. Um, I, so I was going to ask about, um, now that you do have a relationship with Sandra at Gnome Road, do you do you tend to just you know email her directly, or are you still going through like the like their official like query form or like how you know how they do it? Oh, I think I think um, all the Gnome Road authors um, just email her directly when they when they want to discuss the project. And interestingly, I have several other editors at other publishers who have said have said to me you know, I would want to see more work. So don't use the query email. Don't use the submissions email. Just email me directly. So I do that with several, several editors now. That, wow. what's, That's what really we, nice. <laughs> what do we call like one level above a champagne pass? 
That's like no, I don't. I I don't have a place. A, a I don't Susan have a place pass. for this. You call yeah, you I'll call that a Susan pass, Josh. <laughs> I'm gonna give you a Susan. Um, yeah, it, I don't have a place for yeah. this, but I, I I love the vibe. Like, give me more of these vibes. That's that's a great that's a, a great I mean, way yeah, to pass on work for sure. Right. I can't. I mean, it can't be. It. I feel like that's probably really nice and really frustrating to hear at the same time, right? Because it's like, you can't get any closer. It's like, we love this so much, but you're like, really? Like, And I, I yeah, and I had an editor um, pass on a project and then she suggested some other, other publishing houses that might be interested in it. And of course, a lot of those require, are not open to unagented submissions. <sighs> um, but she did ask, she did ask to see more work and um, I have an R&R with that editor. So hopefully then this project that she's looking at, hopefully that will, will be a better fit for her. So, okay. So you've, so you've sort of mentioned this a couple of times with, you know, you can't like some publishers, you need to have an agent in order to submit. So I just want to throw this out there because I was talking to um, a guest that we're going to have on um, in a little bit. Um, he's an author. And the way that he got his agent was actually, he submitted some stuff to Scholastic, or sorry, did he submit it? I can't remember, but ultimately it was like, we want to see your work, but you need to submit it through an agented channel. Like we can't really consider it without an agent. And he was like, okay, shoot. And he really wanted to go with um, Aaron Murphy Lit, who is general. they are generally closed unless you have a referral or you see somebody speak at a conference, right? So you can't just cold query. So what he did was he emailed them and was like, look, I I totally understand your policy. I know you guys are usually closed. However, he's like, under the circumstances, like Scholastic really wants to see my stuff. Would you consider just taking a look at it because I need somebody to submit, you know, on my behalf? And they actually wrote back and were like, yeah, totally. Like, we'd love to see it. Like, you know, let's do that. So I'm just throwing it out there in case, you know, you could use that in a way that is helpful, you know, in your own, in your own querying to just be like, Hey, I've had interest from so-and-so, or, you know, I think this editor would really like my stuff, but I can't submit without an agent. So like, could you just look at it and like, you know, let's see what we can do. Cause I, I feel like I've been in situations semi-recently with my own querying and I'm like, man, there are so many rules and so many guidelines and so many, you know, like you cannot do this and please don't do that. And don't send me this thing. And don't like, you know, query multiple agents at the same house. And like some of those, I I totally get like, those are reasonable and I can follow those, but some of them I feel like are just so arbitrary. And you're just like, like, come on, like, can I please just send you this thing? Like, I'm, so I just, you know, at at some point, I guess my point is like, just, you got to just like, roll the dice and take a chance and see what happens. Cause like we've had a bunch of people on the podcast talking about how they got their agent. And some of them have been super unconventional. Like Joy Sweeney was on and was like, I gave this, you know, I sent this champagne pass. I loved her stuff. And you know, you're not supposed to respond to passes, but this client of hers did. And just to say, thank you so much. And Joyce ended up signing her. So like, you know, you never know. I just, that was a really long tangent. I just, I get excited for like, you know, I don't know, like being able to like thread the needle a little or like find that loophole and just like figure out, you know, where you fit in. Cause like, I, I don't know, like it's, it's really hard. So if you have a shot, you know, go for it, take it. Cause what, what's the worst that can happen? You're in the same situation as you started, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely agents who've said, you know, keep me in mind for the future. I've definitely sent them stuff when they're closed. Um, cause thinking they said, you know, yeah. send me stuff in the future. I, wasn't it was a little unclear if that meant like while I'm closed or wait until I'm open and usually if they're closed they say I'm closed right now um, wait until I reopen but I figured it couldn't hurt to try yes yes and radar, not right. not to say right and not not to say you know not to adhere to you know guidelines or show respect to people in the publishing industry you know that's not that's not what I'm trying to say I'm just I'm just saying, yeah, if, you know, if you have a shot and you can, you know, do something about it, like for people listening, you know, just, you, you gotta, you gotta go for it because otherwise it yeah, may I never think that happen. Was, <laughs> I think that was a little bit of a, a little bit of a gray area because they did, yeah. you know, ask to see more work, but it's unclear. Are you close to everyone? Are you close just to cold queries? Yeah. I think it's a gray area. Totally. Or, or, yeah. or is this like a, uh, is, is it a soft rejection where it's like, oh yeah, I'd love to see your stuff sometime, but that's not actually true. <laughs> I don't think that that was the case. What <laughs> could I find, be, could be. yeah, what I find interesting though is, um, 
creating the space for those sorts of unconventional exposures to take place because traditionally they happen in conventions or in you know meetings uh, through SCBWI or you know whatever whatever the case is where there is a there's a there's a a, a paid component to your presence at this at this place where you're going to have face to a face to face opportunity and those I mean those opportunities are increasing but they're still um, it's it's tough because they are pay limited. They they require you to be there. They require you to invest part of yourself and your own money in um, in something that's ultimately uncertain. And you obviously get a lot more out of these presences and these opportunities than just the opportunity to query. But um, it's a it's a tough situation to be in. Yeah. Well. Um, so Susan, do you, do you have books coming out that you want to promote before, before we let you go or, or has, is there anything we haven't talked about or you want to tell us where to find you? Oh, sure. Well, I think I had told Josh that <laughs> my book was inspired by the Malabar giant squirrels. So awesome. Um, I thought I might share, share that story. And that yes, please. it's awesome. definitely one that I've discovered as I've, as I've been doing author appearances, I've discovered that kids have a lot of interest in, in hearing about the squirrels. So that's something that I, that I usually share when I interact with kids. And I have these photos laminated of the Malabar oh, giant squirrels. Awesome. That is an unconventional looking squirrel. Right? Yeah. These, so this is what, there are no squirrels in the book, but this is what sparked, sparked my interest in the topic. And I did, a, I did an event a couple of months ago in Austin called Squirrel Fest. Um, so I got these photos printed and laminated for Squirrel Fest. And now I can bring them on author visits or um, story times or wherever I'm doing, doing a reading or an appearance. Amazing. But I read about these squirrels online back in 2020. And I was so fascinated by their bright colors. There's like purples and golds and navy blues. And so it got me curious about, could I write a concept book about animals in unusual colors that we wouldn't expect? And then I started thinking, okay, if I were Jane Yolen, I would write this as a poetry collection. And then I said, well, you know, I've been writing poetry for most of my life, so maybe I should give it a shot. And that was the genesis for the book. And I did, I did write a poem about the Malabar giant squirrels who live in India. And I just didn't feel like that poem was as strong as some of the other ones. So it didn't make it into the final manuscript, but that's what, what was the little spark of inspiration for me to explore this topic. Do you have the poem? Will you read it for us? Um, let me see. I probably do. I would, I would love to hear this. So I've never heard of that squirrel before. Yeah, and I don't associate. Maybe this is my lack of worldly sort of education, but the, I don't associate uh, squirrels with India necessarily. So yeah, they certainly don't yeah, look right. like American squirrels. <laughs> they really, um, they really don't, and they, um, there, there are these colors because it helps them to camouflage to the the brighter colors that are the plants in, in Southern India. All right, so I pulled up the poem. Oh, awesome. It says, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, step right up to see the amazing Malabar squirrels. Watch closely as they scurry and glide on a tight rope of branches. And I think there was actually, I think I revised that. Let me see if there's a, another another version. That's yes, the, uh, I have a newer version the, of that, the, that poem. The, po the poetry form that you used in that, that one is Big Top. Uh, the one that presents presents a concept yeah, not like a really, <laughs> yeah, not 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 fully formed right. um, in terms of a, a poetry format yet. And this is a this is a more recent version of that poem. High among the Malabar trees, with branches instead of a flying trapeze, they scurry and glide with the greatest of ease. Oh, I like that one. That's really fun. Yeah. And what what poetry form was that in? It was, I mean, at that time, I wasn't really like fully invested in that idea oh, okay. of exploring, okay. of exploring different, it's a Susan. different poetry formats. <laughs> yeah, it's a Susan. Awesome. Well, I mean, thank you for sharing that with us. That was really fun. <laughs> thank you. And, and where can we find you? Because you you are not on Twitter. Is that right? No, oh, I am. You are. I'm That's Urban how we News got connected writer for sure. on Twitter. Yeah. 
Oh, that's okay. I, I was searching for your name earlier and I couldn't find you on Twitter, but that's, it's because it's not your actually, it's not your name name. Okay. So I got to go yeah. back and find you. Yeah. I, I slid okay. into Josh's DMs. Okay. We connected. <laughs> okay. Got Don't it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I'm also urban news writer on Instagram and my website is staylorwrites.com. Okay, we will link all of that in the show notes so that people can find you. Because I sometimes my Twitter just does not bring stuff up and then I have to open like a second page and do like a weird search. And Anyways, I didn't... Okay, so we will we will put it out there so people can find you and it'll and be your, super and your easy. Threads, your threads is the same as your Instagram too, right? We're just banking on banking on threads existing into the future. I, I have not joined threads just yet. <laughs> When this airs oh in November gosh. or whenever, whenever that that happens, we'll just we'll we'll edit it so that you say you have joined Threads because it'll be the <laughs> thing by, be then. by then. <laughs> yeah, probably oh probably gosh. by then I will have so many social media apps. Mm-hmm. Just so so little time. Okay, well, Indeed. I mean, Susan, thank you for coming on. This has been really informative. I feel like there there was a bunch of stuff in your chat that I, I, you know, generally didn't know about Kidlet, like Pal and just some of the other, you know, like the poetry forms. And it was, it was really informational and I appreciate you chatting with us. Thanks, Brenna. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening this week. Find all of our episodes and other associated links and information at linktree.com slash verse show. Or reach out to us on Blue Sky, Instagram, or Threads. Thanks again. And we'll see you next verse. Bye.